Welcome to New Creation, a home for the creative community of Los Angeles. For more information, visit our website at newcreationla.com. And now, the sermon. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Gesher in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say Absalom is king at Hebron. Second Samuel 15, 1-10. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thanks be to God. Well, church family, we've been going through the story of the life of David. And over the last several weeks, we saw the rise of David. And over the last few weeks, we've now seen the fall of of David. And so I think it's very appropriate that we continue with this story of David through the season of Advent as we long for the coming of Jesus. My hope, my prayer is that this story will create that longing in each of us. David and the greater king. Well, let's, uh, let's get into the story uh, that you heard read today. I want to first give you just a little bit of backstory. So if you remember back to a couple weeks ago, uh, Nathan had uh, told David in chapter 12, verse 10, uh, after his affair with Bathsheba was exposed and the murder of her husband Uriah, uh, Nathan told him, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The Lord forgave David, but there were still consequences for his actions and for the whole kingdom. And so we see that the sword will be a part of David's household moving forward. The very next chapter, chapter 13, one of David's sons, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, David hears about it, and he is furious. He is angry, but guess what? He does nothing. He does nothing about it. But his brother Absalom, also son of David, has this hate 
that just stirs up in him. And for two years, he premeditates how he's going to murder Amnon. And that's exactly what happens. He murders him. He kills him, and then he flees. He goes into exile, and he has no contact with David, his father, for three years. And we're told that David longed for Absalom during those three years, but no contact, no word. Imagine what that would be like for David such pain. He has this love for his son, and yet this hurt, this wounding for what his son did to his other son in killing him. Absalom doesn't know that David's heart longs for him. He's just away with no word, wondering, does anybody even remember me? Does anyone care about me? We're told that there, there was this longing, but again, there was no word. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, a pastor friend of mine, talks about um, the law of relationships. And that when our relationships are governed by law, uh, what happens is often estrangement. Okay, so here's the rules to be in a relationship with me, and if you can't keep those rules, then you are out. If that's how we live, estrangement follows. And I'm sure over this last week, Thanksgiving, uh, many of you have felt that. Uh, I know that I have felt that. Uh, my extended family, I heard about a story this week of someone that was supposed to show up for a birthday dinner and didn't, and there was anger and no apologies, and so no talking between either one, right? Estrangement. It's because that relationship is all based on law. There's no grace in that relationship. And so uh, that's what happens. And so um, David through the convincing of this wise woman at the, at the request of his general, uh, allows Absalom uh, to come back, to come back to Jerusalem. But he still will not see him. So he's allowed back into the city, but no face-to-face -face contact with David. And so after two more years uh, of waiting for Absalom, he finally decides, all right, you know what? I'm going to, uh, I'm going to call David's general and get a meeting uh, with David. And so he does so. Uh, he contacts Joab, his general, and Joab just disregards him. And so Absalom says, all right, you know what? Burn down his field. You're not going to return my calls? Guess what? I'm burning down your house. So he burns down the field. Okay. <laughs> I get the message, let's get you uh, a meeting with the king. And so he gets a meeting with the king. And at this meeting, uh, I'm, I'm gonna share with you the verse in a, in a moment, but I want you to, to try to discern which hat is David wearing 
with Absalom? Is he wearing his father hat or is he wearing the hat of the king? Because he's both, right? He's, he's his father, but he's also the king. Uh, in my household, there's uh, difficulty sometimes with uh, the hats of pastor and dad. The girls will lovingly call me pastor dad sometimes. And there's times when they want uh, to just hang out with dad. Can we just play and have fun? Like you don't have to be like our pastor right now, right? And so they want one hat or sometimes they want the other hat. Hey, you know that, uh, that grace and kindness and sacrifice you show to everybody else? Like how about a little bit of that for me? Right, so which hat? Well, let's take a look at uh, chapter 14 and listen for which hat uh, David is wearing here. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. All right, little, little straw poll. Who thinks that sounds more like the father hat. Who thinks that sounds like the king hat? All right. Well, I think one thing that might help us a little bit is to uh, look forward to a story that Jesus tells of the prodigal son. You know the story. Wayward son goes off, spends his inheritance, and he decides it's better for me to live as a servant in my father's house. And so he makes the journey back. Let's see how his father receives him. Luke 15, 20. Speaking of um, the prodigal. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. That's what the father hat should look like, right? I see my son, he's way off. My heart is moved to compassion, and he runs toward him. He runs toward him. When he gets him, he just can't keep his arms away, and he embraces him, and he just starts kissing him. And bring him the royal robe, bring him the, the slippers, bring him my, my ring, right? That's, that's a father's compassion. But what we see with, with David and Absalom is he's treating him like a dignitary, right? Go before him and bow face down. And the king comes up and kisses his head. Right? That's, that's formality. That's not relationship. That's not a father and a son. That is a king and his subject. It is cold it is formal, and there's no restoration in it. And so this brings us to the passage that you heard this morning in chapter 15. And so immediately we have this resentment from Absalom. You could, you could imagine what it would sound like in his own mind after all that, over, after, uh, after all that waiting, after that exchange of just coldness, you know what? My dad, the king, he doesn't care about anybody. All he cares about is himself. He doesn't care about justice, right? He had a man murdered. He doesn't even care about the rape of his own daughter. He did nothing. You know why? Because he's a rapist. 
He doesn't care about anybody but himself. And you know what? He doesn't deserve to be king. I could make this nation so much better, right? You know what? I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him because he deserves to die. But here's the problem. (laughs) Those things may all be true, but that is not Absalom's call. That's not his decision to make. That's God's decision. And I'll ask you, how often do you feel like, you know what, I can run this world better than God can without any consideration for what God might be doing, how he might be at work? And so Absalom plots. He wants to be king. Well, step one, you got to look like a king. You need to make sure that people see you as a king. And so you know what he does? Every day for four years, he gets up early in the morning and he gets a horse and he gets a chariot and 50 men run out in front of him and they go to the city gate. Wow, looks pretty impressive, right? Here's this royal entourage. And so he waits at the city gate So he wants to look like a king. But here's the thing. He hasn't fought and defended his country. He wants to look the part without any experience, without the hardship, without the sacrifice. And so for him, it's all show. All right, so step two, make allies. So here he is at the gate. Like I said, every day, for four years. And every day at that city gate, out of town travelers come. And so the city gate was kind of like a courthouse. And so the out of town travelers would come when they had issues of justice. We need a hearing with the king to resolve whatever problem we're having. And so they go and they're met at the gate by Absalom. And, he just tries to look like the common man. Yeah, I had all this fanfare and everything, but you know, people would see him and they'd go and start to bow. Oh, no, 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 none of that. He would kiss hands like a politician. He'd be like the, the politician that would roll up you know, onto the job site, blue-collar workers, and, hey, let me have half of that sandwich and sit down with you. I'm not afraid to get a little mud on my shoes and kind of loosen the tie a little bit. I'm one of the common men. I'm just like you. That's what Absalom's doing here. I'm just like you. Don't bow before me. Just hang out. So uh, where are you from? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's uh, a nice place. I've been there. So uh, what brings you to the city gate? Oh, you're having uh, an issue with that? That is terrible. So yeah, tell me the details. What happened? Boy. You've got a really solid case. You are in the right. But, gosh, you know what the bummer of it is? Is that there's no audience to hear your complaint. I guess David doesn't really care about justice. Well, you know what? 
if, if I were appointed a, a judge over the whole country, I would hear your case and I would make sure you got justice because you're in the right. Right? So pretty slick political moves. He does this every day for four years. He gets his allies. And you know what David does? Nothing. Why? We don't know. The scriptures don't tell us. Maybe he just feels guilty over everything that happens. Maybe he felt like, who am I to, to judge this kid, to come down hard on him after all I've done? And so he just sits idle and he lets him do it. Well, the next step for Absalom is to steal the hearts of the people. Let's look at verse 6. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Here's the thing. Absalom never met a plaintiff that he didn't agree with. He was just a yes man, telling people what they wanted to hear. But a real king, a real king has to make difficult judgments. A real king has to tell hard things to people. A real king has to rule against people. But Absalom, he just sit there, the yes man, telling everybody just what they want to hear. And here's the crazy thing, it worked. He deceives them. He dupes them. He steals their heart. Absalom, he's just a wannabe king. That's terrible, right? But I'll ask this question. What about, what about us? Are we wannabes? Wannabe kings? Well, one commentator gave uh, what I think is a really helpful assessment for us. He says this, you know, Absalom just used people to get what he wanted. He didn't care about them. All he cared about was what they could do for him. And so there's the question for, for us. Do we ever use people like that? So I want you to wrestle with these questions for yourself. Not for the person sitting next to you, not for the person in your mind, but wrestle with them for you. Let's start with our work. Do we use our coworkers, our employees, just to get what we want? Are they tools for our kingdom? Or do we really care about them as uh, genuine people, people who are created by God? Uh, this is super common in the arts, right? Do we use people as tools to get the next acting job, the next music gig, the next uh, production schedule? Or do we care about people, these people, as image bearers of God, worthy of dignity and respect? That is such a problem in our city that it's actually... Uh, it makes it hard uh, to make friends. 
because people think, oh, you're kind of being nice. I don't know if you just want something from me. Right? This is so common in our own city. All right, here's another one uh, for us to assess, parenting. Do we use the behavior of our children to show the world what wonderful parents we are? Do we use our children as a, a vehicle to our accolades? Do we use their achievements, their talents as a mark of our greatness? Are our children just tools to feed our egos? These are good questions to wrestle with. One more. Uh, at the end of Absalom's story, he builds up a monument to himself. <laughs> and so the same question for us. Do we build up monuments to ourselves? Absalom stole the hearts of people. And so the fact that he stole them means that they belong to someone else. Who did those hearts belong to? David? No. Those hearts belong to God. He's stealing their hearts from God. The job of the king is to make the name of God great. Absalom's heart is to make his own name great. Do we ever do that? Is my motivation ever to make people think just how great I am? If so, that's actually stealing from God. Anything good in us should be a pointer to how great God is, not me. Uh, years ago, I got to do a uh, missions trip to India, and one of the things that uh, I got to participate in was some training of pastors there. And at the session that I led, uh, I talked about the incommunicable attributes of God and how pastors have a tendency to try to take on those attributes themselves, all-knowing, right? And so if you have an answer for everything, who are you pointing people to? Not to God. You're pointing them to you. All present, right? As pastors, we can go, oh, uh, I have to be at every single thing. It doesn't have validity if I'm not there. If you're doing that, you're showing people you're all present and you're pointing them to you, not to God. All powerful. Oh, I can get anything done. If I work hard, I'll get it. You know, who are you pointing people to? Not to God, you're pointing them to you. And so this question isn't just for pastors, it's for all of us. Do we build ourselves up to point people to us or to God? Well, the next step of Absalom's plan after deceiving the people is to deceive David. So let's take a look at verses 7 and 8. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. So Absalom goes to his dad and says, Hey, 
When I was in exile, I made this promise to God that I would come and worship him at Hebron. Now, in Deuteronomy, it says, when you make those vows, you're to do them immediately. It's been four years, but David doesn't ask questions. Maybe he's convinced, oh, this kid's finally turning the corner, right? He's finally going to do right. He's, I'm not going to stand in the way of him going and worshiping God. But that's not Absalom's intent. And so David is deceived. And he tells him, go in peace. Go in the peace of God. And so we're then brought to now the full conspiracy of Absalom. Let's take a look at verse 10. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. So he sends out his secret messengers. He, he places them in the crowds all around the country. When you get the sign, here's what you say, Absalom is king. And people will believe it. The next thing he does, verse 11. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. All right? So from the palace, we get a group of 200 men from Jerusalem that go with him. They're, they don't know of his conspiracy. But again, this shows this huge appearance. Wow, look at Absalom's going to Hebron, where, by the way, David was crowned kind of a royal spot. And he goes there with this huge entourage. And so people are watching going, whoa, looks, look what's going on here. And his last uh, part of the conspiracy is to win over Ahitophel. Let's take a look at verse 12. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahitophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Ahitophel was David's closest counselor. He was considered the wisest man in all of Israel. He was like an oracle of God. But you know what else? Uh, we know about this man is that he was Bathsheba's grandfather. And so Absalom might think, you know what? This is not going to be that hard of a sell. You want justice? Now's the time. And so he wins him over. David gets word that all of this has taken place and he flees. Let's take a look at verse 14. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtakes us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. This is shocking, right? David, 
David, who was anointed king. David, who struck down Goliath, who brought the ark back to Jerusalem, who united the 12 tribes. This David is now saying, we got to go. We've got to flee. You see, David realizes that the people are with his son. They're with Absalom. And he doesn't want a war in the middle of Jerusalem. And so he descends, literally and figuratively. He descends literally down the mountain, down from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives and down to the Jordan. And figuratively, he descends into exile. And as he leaves, he weeps. And everyone who went with him weeps. And we're told the whole land weeps. Lament. What sadness. What tragedy. What is David weeping over? Well, I think one, he's weeping over his sin. He's seeing the full effects of what he's done come about. It just started him walking on the roof. And now here we are. What a travesty. And so he weeps. He leads the way. He gets to the last house in the city. And then everyone marches past him. But as this happens, something incredible happens. David is awakened. He's awakened by the grace of God. At the end of the line, there are 600 Gittite men, soldiers, mercenaries, really. And they are from Goliath's hometown. And one of those men was a leader named Ittai. And Ittai had just come into David's service. And David sees him and he says, why would you come with me? You should go back. Go back to Jerusalem. Stay with King Absalom. You're already in exile from your homeland. Who knows where I'm going? Go back and take your 600 men with you. It's incredible. What we see here is this grace of transformation in David. He's now thinking of others first. He could have used those 600 men fighting for him, but instead he seeks their good and he blesses them. He says, may the Lord show you steadfast love. May the Lord show you covenant faithfulness. Does anybody remember the word? Hesed. May the Lord show you Hesed. Unbelievable. When we trust the Lord, we begin to see people differently. Not as objects for our purposes, for means for our little kingdoms. Ittai, here's David, and he'll have none of it. Let's look at verse 21. 
But Atai answered the king, as the Lord lives, he uses the covenant name of God as Yahweh lives, and my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. This incredible loyalty, loyalty that you would expect from Absalom, his son, that now comes from this stranger out of a heart for God. This Gentile has been converted. And he wants to serve David because he wants to serve the Lord. Ittai, through faith, had become a loyal son. In the midst of the tears the lament, the darkness, David is now trusting God. He is awakened to trust God. Well, this story, as each of these stories have done, points us to the greater king. It makes us long for the greater king, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, like David, walked the path of shame from the garden to the cross. He walked that path of shame for us so that we wouldn't have to. He took our place. And like David, our greater king walked out of the city in shame with an entourage carrying a cross. And he bore not his own shame, but rather our shame on his shoulders. He faced the law for our sin so that we could experience his grace. And so that through faith, we would no longer be estranged to God, but instead we would be welcomed sons and daughters. Our God is the father of the prodigal who runs out to greet us and embrace us and kiss us delighting in lost sons and daughters who are found. And so in Jesus, we are not treated with the relationship of law, but we are treated with the relationship of grace. And this incredible grace, this good news, the gospel also comes with a dynamic, transforming power. It comes with this power that makes us into new creations so that we more and more will treat people like fellow image bearers, worthy of dignity and respect, and treat them less and less as tools for our purposes. Instead of using people for what we want, we can partner with one another for what God wants. And so in Jesus, we learn to live for a name greater than ourselves and for a purpose greater than our own. And so church, I want to remind us of just a few things in closing here. One, the danger and destruction of sin. It's so easy to think, you know what, this is just me. This doesn't affect anybody else. This can be in secret. And so this story shows us just the effect 
the wide-ranging effect that our sin can have. And I also want to remind us that through faith in what Jesus has accomplished, we are new creations, that we've been transformed to extend that same grace that we have received. And we see in this story this lamenting, this longing and weeping in David. Just as Jesus, our greater king, wept over the city. As he lamented its sin and its brokenness. And as we lament the broken relationships in our own lives, it helps us to long for the second advent of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, when he will make all things right, when he will end all mourning, all crying, all pain, and all death. So as we prepare for Christmas, this celebration of Jesus' first coming, we do it by lamenting. We lament, though, with hope, with hope for his second coming. And so may our longing, may our lamenting awaken us to the grace of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this story today. It's so difficult to hear and painful to hear, and so it makes us lament. It makes us lament not only what happened then, but what happens now around us. And Lord, I pray that as you work this story into our hearts, that it would make us long for Jesus, our greater King for his second coming, to to come and end all that is broken in this world. And so, Lord, we lament today to prepare for Christmas. And we lament with hope for what you've promised. And we pray it all in the mighty and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this sermon and encourage you to become a regular member of our online community. To find out more about the church, visit our website at newcreationla.com.